maybe to start, um, if you could uh, talk about what you think the health of capitalism is at the moment and why it is that particularly in developed countries, people seem to be losing faith in the ability of capitalism to improve their lives. If one takes a step back and asks how capitalism is doing worldwide, uh, the answer is pretty well, uh, in the sense that there isn't a coherent ideological alternative to it of the sort that in the 20th century was advanced by Marxists. Uh, there are just a few last redoubts of, of Marxism. Uh, the problem is that within developed countries, there is still a significant economic, social and political hangover from the financial crisis that began 10 years ago. And I think the best answer to the question, why is there disillusionment uh, about capitalism, particularly amongst younger voters in countries such as uh, Britain and the United States, uh, that's where to look. Because for those uh, younger voters, their economic education kind of began 10 years ago up with the financial crisis that it's pretty easy to blame on capitalism. And the, this, the effects that that is um, causing them to lose faith in it are, I mean, one of them is, is wage stagnation, right? But, but that goes back in, at least in the US, to before the financial crisis. Yeah, I think if one looks in the US case, the problems of inequality and uh, the stagnation of the average household's uh, real income, those problems date back uh, to the early 2000s. In effect, median household income is about where it was in 1999, having gone significantly downwards in the period of the crisis. And if one asks where have the lion's share of gains in real income gone over that period, the answer is clear to the top 1% of the income distribution, actually even more to the top 0.1%. So the American story is, I think, partly a story of inequality. Uh, that's less true in Britain. You can't really make the same arguments about the UK uh, data. And it's also worth remembering that even after that experience in the United States, it wasn't Bernie Sanders who became president. It was, it was Donald Trump who won last year. And Trump's critique of the status quo was not anti-capitalist. He, after all, glories in his uh, claimed success as a capitalist. His critique was of globalization, of free trade, uh, of uh, immigration, of the outsourcing uh, of American uh, jobs 
to the rest of the world. So I think you've got to make some distinctions here. The economic grievances of the last 20 years in the United States didn't produce a backlash against capitalism. They produced a backlash against globalization, which is, I think, something slightly different. If you were to summarize what the effects of globalization have been, um, how would you put it? And uh, is it possible to separate capitalism from globalization? It's very difficult to separate capitalism from globalization because globalization was essentially the export to the rest of the world of capitalist institutions, and in particular, the transformation of a Chinese economic policy from a communist to a, a capitalist model, albeit a capitalist model with significant state uh, involvement in the economy. So you can't draw a completely uh, clear-cut distinction, except insofar as voters in the United States clearly did. People weren't voting against capitalism when they voted for Donald Trump, but they may have been voting against globalization. The other complicating factor is technology. It's clear that technology, automation, and so on, played a part in uh, getting rid of manufacturing jobs. It's hard to separate technology uh, from globalization and capitalism, but academics try to do that to try to establish what the real drivers are of these problems of economic stagnation that we're talking about. As you say, what people seem to be losing faith in is the idea of um, free-flowing capital and free-flowing trade. And uh, why is it important to, um, assuming that you think it's important to uh, protect those things, um, why is it important that that we keep them going? The benefits of free trade, uh, of relatively free migration, uh, of free capital movements are fairly familiar to anybody who's done the most basic course in economics. Uh, the ideas of comparative advantage go back a long way. Uh, the benefits of free markets and free trade even further back to Adam Smith. Uh, so it's not new news that there are benefits uh, to relatively liberal uh, policies on trade, migration, and uh, capital movement. The most obvious benefits in the recent past to people in developed countries have come in the form of cheap consumer goods. Uh, that has had a significant impact on disposable income, on, on real income. If it hadn't been for globalization, stuff that we expect nowadays to be cheap particularly technology, gadgets, would be much more expensive. Now, we don't see many demonstrations in favor of uh, cheap uh, gadgets because that benefit of globalization is kind of taken for granted. The beneficiaries don't feel sufficiently, I think, uh, grateful to globalization for that. Whereas the losers of globalization, the people whose jobs in manufacturing disappeared and who see the same jobs now being done in China and elsewhere, are uh, by and large more vocal. So that's the, the problem for proponents of globalization. But let me add one thing. It is not the case that there should be 
an absolutely unlimited uh, free market in labor uh, goods and capital. If you had a completely uh, free market world, the flows of migrants would be really enormous. And uh, voters in Europe have already made it clear that they regard immigration from south of the Mediterranean as having grown excessive. But you would see far more if there were no restrictions on flows of labor. I think what voters were trying to communicate last year was not uh, let's go back to autarky and end all trade and on all migration and all capital flows. I think voters were saying we've overshot. And I think there was too much globalization. Too much globalization produced the migration crisis. And it also produced the financial crisis in the sense that uh, it was the integration of global capital markets that led a subprime mortgage crisis in the United States to blow up European banks. So I think the issue here is not yes or no to globalization. It's a question of degree. And I think we ended up uh, in the last 10 or 20 years with uh, a kind of overshoot of globalization. And voters not unreasonably said, please, could you dial it back? Part of it is the speed that the change has been too rapid for people who've lost out on lost their industrial jobs and now don't have anything to replace them with. Um, but there also seems to be an issue of workers getting a smaller slice of the pie. And, um, you know, wh what, what is behind that what, and what's gone wrong that, um, that, that labor is, is not getting as much as it used to of the growth? The most obvious explanation for the declining uh, share of income going to labor as opposed to capital is the decline of uh, labor organization, trade unions. But I think there are better explanations uh, than that. Uh, I think if one looks at the ways in which uh, technology is transforming the global economy, the reality is that the demand for unskilled labor particularly has waned. And if the demand for unskilled labor wanes, it doesn't really matter how many trade unions you, you set up, uh, the returns to unskilled labor will fall. So I think that's probably the best way to think about that problem. Educational systems in the developed world are really doing quite badly, especially in countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. And I think it's important to recognize that failures to equip uh, the population, and particularly young people, for the 21st century should not be blamed on capitalism or globalization, for that matter. They are a failure of public policy, of national governments to provide the kind of education that is needed. And if one looks at the data on the performance of the public school system uh, in the United States, it's really quite shocking. And the work that Raj Chetty here at Stanford has been doing shows just how large a part bad schools and bad teachers uh, play in at the widening inequality that characterizes the United States today. So 
I think before we get carried away by talk of a crisis of capitalism, the kind of talk that left-wing academics and journalists always like to engage in, let's take a long, hard look at failures of public policy and ask, for example, who are the major opponents of reform, of improvement, of public education? And in the United States, the answer is the teachers' unions. Well, I suppose if you were on the left, you would say also that that failure is also a failure of government to spend enough. Uh, well, governments uh, spend a lot uh, uh, on education, and they spend even more on, on health care. But the results of increased expenditure in these areas are in no way uh, to raise uh, productivity. So I think we need to recognize that much of the kind of malaise, if one wants to use that word, that one sees in developed countries in terms not only of poor education but poor health uh, is not the result of insufficient expenditure. Uh, the costs of education and health care are actually rising. And yet the outputs, the results, are deeply disappointing. So... It's not capitalism that's the problem here. The real crisis, as I try to argue in a book called The Great Degeneration uh, five years ago, the real problem really lies in some fundamental failures of the state. Uh, its fiscal system, which is in a crisis on both sides of the Atlantic, its excessively complex regulatory system, uh, its failure to deliver uh, the kind of educational improvements that were achieved in the 19th and 20th century. We're going into reverse in terms of uh, literacy and numeracy, and also increasingly in terms of public health. Uh, is that the fault of capitalism? I don't think so. But um, if you look at the um, growth rates, for example, they, they, they seem to have slowed down and there seems... You know, one view is that this this is the new normal and productivity is a is a problem not just for public sector spending, but seems to be a problem generally. So um, it's, this growth slowdown, is that an inevitable uh, trend or is it something, you know, wh how could it be addressed and uh, what's gone wrong to cause it? There's a great debate going on within the economics profession about so-called secular stagnation which my former boss at Harvard, Larry Summers, started. And I remain sceptical of the claim that we are in some kind of uh, permanent, uh, low-growth, low-interest rate, low-inflation plateau. In productivity terms, there's nothing secular uh, going on here. Productivity data show that pretty clearly. There are relatively short-run fluctuations in productivity, uh, which don't seem to me to answer to the description of secular stagnation. And I think it is uh, perfectly plausible that we would see improvements in productivity if there were significant reforms of the uh, government policies I've just been talking about. If you did comprehensive tax reform, for example, in the United States, if you did meaningful deregulation. In other words, if you uh, did the kind of policies that have been talked about by Republicans, but so far not really delivered in Washington, I think it's true to say that there would be a significant 
improvement in productivity and in aggregate growth. That argument was recently made by my colleagues here at the Hoover Institution, uh, John Taylor, Kevin Walsh and others, and I think it's right. So there's a policy issue here. Uh, there are clearly headwinds to investment uh, in the United States in the tax code and in regulation. That's a well-known fact. It was true five years ago when I published The Great Degeneration. And we're still not really at the point of being able to say that those problems are being solved. In fact, with every passing week, the ambition of the Republican legislative program is diluted. Uh, so I think one needs to come back to the, the central problem that bad government policy uh, is a, a factor in the relatively uh, poor performance that we've seen of developed economies since the financial crisis. The argument made on the other side is obviously that um, the, the failure means we need more control and more regulation rather than less. And you're, uh, you're, you're saying basically the opposite. Well, that's a silly argument, in my view, because when you look closely at the financial crisis, that began 10 years ago, it began in those parts of the financial system that were most regulated. It's not as if the banks weren't regulated in 2007. They were. Uh, people used to worry that the next financial crisis would come from relatively unregulated sectors of the economy, hedge funds or uh, such things. But in fact, it came from the banks. The regulations were there in profusion. But a point I made in The Great Degeneration is that regulation is often the disease of which it purports to be the cure. The more complicated the regulation, uh, the more large financial organizations are able to game it. And they did game it and became excessively leveraged, insufficiently capitalized and exposed to all kinds of risks that, according to the regulations, were not risks at all. So I don't think one can say uh, that the financial crisis was caused by a lack of regulation. Perhaps that regulation was not... Uh, well-designed, I think that would be a more accurate statement. And I think we've, we, we're in danger of learning completely the wrong lessons uh, from the crisis. Enormous amounts of new regulation have been generated on both sides of the Atlantic. Much of that regulation seems to me beside the point. I do not think, in fact, with all the additional regulation uh, that has been created, that the financial system is significantly more stable than it was 10 years ago. That's one of the uh, quirks of our, our time. And uh, the excessive focus on bank capital adequacy led to a neglect of a whole range of other problems that I think were just as important in causing the crisis. But the right seems to have lost control of this narrative because the uh, more commonly held narrative is that the financial crisis was a failure of deregulation and capitalism blowing itself up. So how would you propose that the right um, regain the initiative on, on, on that whole narrative? The important thing to recognise is that the crisis came about because governments essentially allowed too big to fail banks to assume that they would be bailed out in a crisis. And it was the cosy relationship between government and Wall Street and the City of London that, uh, that was the cause of the crisis. Moral hazard's a term that, that uh, needs to be uh, used in this connection. Uh, banks behaved because correctly they assumed that they would be rescued if they got into difficulties. And with one exception, Lehman Brothers, that turned out to be pretty much true. Uh, 
So I think we need to have a different story or narrative, if you want to use that fancy word, about the financial crisis. The, the story that it was all the fault of deregulated markets, which has been put about by journalists like Paul Krugman, is a fairy story and bears no relation to the historical reality. Unfortunately, that story has uh, gained a great deal of uh, uh, credibility because it, it is an easy uh, story to tell. Uh, the more complicated story that, that excessively complex regulation and cosy relationships between government and banks were to blame hasn't been given nearly enough airtime. But it's historically a far more plausible story and the one that I've certainly tried to tell. How do we convince people now because the, you know, going forwards, because it, it seems that people are um, increasingly, you know, having having misdiagnosed uh, the cause, they're going off in, in, a, in a direction, I suppose, that you would say is, is the same as they were before, but more. So, and, and I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, free trade in Britain became uh, popular through, you know, there was a whole um, uh, narrative that developed and, you know, free trade shops and, uh, you know, that, which is now very deeply rooted, I think, um, and even though it's questioned, I think is still generally quite uh, quite accepted by people. But we don't seem to have that initiative now to sell the idea of globalization or or capitalism to people in the same way. Well, I'm not sure about that. After all, a very significant part of the Brexit campaign uh, was based on the claim that outside the European Union, Britain could pursue a more uh, pro-free trade policy. I was sceptical about that at the time, but that was the argument that people like Daniel Hannan made. Uh, and it is still argued that somehow uh, after Brexit, Britain will be able to do a whole bunch of free trade deals and be somehow freed from the, uh, the embrace of, of Brussels. So I think there's been a a kind of confusion in British politics over the past year and a half, a confusion on the right uh, about the uh, costs and benefits of the European Union, and at the same time, an even greater confusion on the left. If I were living in Britain now, I would be worried above all by the rise of Jeremy Corbyn as <coughs> Labour leader from uh, being a kind of lunatic fringe militant tendency element on the uh, periphery of the Labour Party to being not just the Labour leader, but, but potentially the next prime minister if the Tories uh, don't pull themselves together. And Corbyn uh, and Corbyn's popularity, especially with younger voters, are the big worries because he is an unreconstructed uh, leftist who uh, is, uh, I think, uh, tempting younger voters with implausible uh, promises uh, along the lines of uh, jam today, uh, uh, jam tomorrow, and, uh, and regulation of anything you don't like. I, I think that's the big worry in, in Britain. And if we see a similar tendency on the uh, American left, if we see the Democratic Party moving left, 
uh, perhaps under the influence of Elizabeth Warren, uh, then I think we'll have similar cause for concern here. To me, the real worry is not that, that capitalism is in crisis. It's not. Uh, the real worry is that socialism is making a comeback, and that's different. And the reason it's, it's concerning is that we thought we'd killed it off in about 1989. But as I discover every day, students today have no memory of that great battle in the 1980s that led to the defeat of the communist states, uh, as well as the defeat of socialism as an ideology. And so they're ready to lap it all up as if the 1980s never happened. And if you were to address a crowd of Corbyn supporters, um, what would be in, in brief your message to them? That the lesson of history is clear. The more you attempt to pursue socialist policies uh, in the pursuit of uh, egalitarian outcomes, the worse it goes uh, for the economy and uh, also potentially for political freedom. And I thought it was very interesting that Jeremy Corbyn could not bring himself to condemn the Venezuelan dictatorship, which he for so long has been a fan of, even with blood in the streets of Caracas and a manifestly undemocratic uh, turn of events with the opposition leaders under arrest and the economy in a state of complete collapse. So, you know, Venezuela is a nice illustration of what happens if uh, the radical left uh, gets in charge uh, and pursues the kinds of, of policy that are increasingly respectable once again on the left in, in developed countries. My message to anybody tempted to vote for Corbyn and the policies that he has supported all his life is look at what happened the last time we tried those policies in the United Kingdom. I'm old, old enough, you're not, to remember what a mess the 1970s were. And that mess was the result uh, of excessive government intervention in the economy, excessively high tax rates, a monetary policy designed to achieve full employment, even when that was not attainable without double-digit inflation, and uh, excessively powerful trade unions who were able to bring the UK economy to a near standstill. We've seen this movie before. All you need to do is a day's economic history reading to see why it will be a disaster if we decide to forget all that and revert to the failed policies of mid-20th century socialism.